Hi, you found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. In today's podcast, poets Robert Polito and David Trinidad have a conversation in front of a live audience. Hello, everyone, and thank you for coming. Um, before we start, if you could take out your cell phones and put them on silent or turn them off, that would be great. Um, I'm Becca Claver, and I'm the Assistant Programs Director for Literature and Poetry in the English Department here at Columbia. And I'd like to welcome you to Poets in Hollywood, Robert Polito and David Trinidad in Conversation, which is presented by Columbia College Chicago's English Department Creative Writing Poetry Program in collaboration with Bomb Magazine. Um, before we start, I'd like to let everyone know that the next event in our Spring 2009 series will be a reading by Ron Paget and Michael Burkard. This is our annual Alma Stuckey Memorial Reading, and it takes place on Wednesday, April 22nd at 5.30, right here in the Film Row Cinema. And like all of our readings, it's free and open to the public. Now back to today's event. Um, first, I want to thank Bomb Magazine for helping to put this program together, especially Monica De La Torre, Senior Editor, Betsy Sussler, Editor-in-Chief, and Paul Morris, Director of Marketing and Special Projects. Very soon, you'll be able to find a recording of this event online in the Bomb Live section of the Bomb Magazine website, which is www.bombsite.com. And it'll also be available as a podcast on the Bomb blog in late April. So first, I'm going to let you know a little bit about the poets. And um, then they'll read some of their own work. And then they'll sit here and talk with each other. And at the very end, we'll have a little bit of time for questions, if you have any. Robert Polito's most recent books are the poetry collection Hollywood and God, and the complete film writings of Manny Farber, which is forthcoming in August 2009. His other books include Doubles, A Reader's Guide to James Merrill's The Changing Light at Sandover, and Savage Art, a biography of Jim Thompson, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography. He's the founder and director of the New School Graduate Writing Program and is completing a new book, Detours, Seven Noir Lives. David Trinidad's most recent book, The Late Show, was published by Turtle Point Press in 2007. With Jeffrey Conway and Lynn Crosby, he co-wrote Phoebe 2002, an essay in verse, published in 2003, also by Turtle Point, a mock epic based on the 1950 film All About Eve. His other books include Answer Song, Hand Over Heart, Poems 1981 to 1988, and Plasticville, a finalist for the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize of the Academy of American Poets. With Denise Duhamel and Maureen Seaton, he edited Saints of Hysteria, a half century of collaborative American poetry. David teaches poetry here at Columbia College, where he co-edits the journal Court Green. And both David and Robert will have some books with them to sell, um, so feel free to approach them after the reading. And without further ado, um, we'll have readings by the poets. Please welcome David and Robert. Thanks, Becca. This is the title poem of my book, The Late Show. 
it's a, a list um, of scenes drawn from memory of movies that I watched in the early 1970s as a teenager. And in those days, um, the only, about, just about the only way you could watch an old movie was by catching it on late night television. And there were only about 12 channels um, at that time. The Late Show. Natalie Wood, in the middle of reciting a Wordsworth poem, bursts into tears and runs out of the classroom. Carol Baker gasps in an oxygen tent, her platinum Harlow hair damp and flat. Kim Stanley throws a champagne glass at her mother's taxi, screaming, there is no God, there is no God. In a chiffon cocktail dress and ankle straps, Joan Crawford staggers down the beach, convinced her lover, Jeff Chandler, is out to murder her. Lana Turner learns that she and her daughter, Sandra Dee, are in love with the same man. Jilted and demented, Susie Parker crouches in an alleyway in a soiled trench coat, sifting through Louis Jordan's trash. To avoid forging the signature of her twin sister, whom she's killed, Betty Davis grabs the red-hot end of a fire iron with her writing hand. Doris Day, in a black lace peignoir, sobs into the telephone, Who are you? Why are you doing this to me? Julie Harris hear, hears Hill House beckoning, beckoning. Geraldine Page begs Paul Newman for a fix. Simone Signoret wipes her fingerprints off the glass as James Kahn collapses, dead at her feet. Lee Remick pours herself another drink. Trembling, Ingrid Bergman watches the gaslights dim. Shirley MacLaine breaks down, admits her attraction to Audrey Hepburn. Barbara Stanwyck tries to keep Capucine. Elizabeth Taylor scrawls with lipstick, no sail across a mirror. Deborah Carr smolders, Shelley Winters shrieks. Kim Novak screams and backs out of the bell tower into thin air. James Schuyler. I went to his 66th birthday dinner 16 years ago this past November. I remember that it was at Chelsea Central, his favorite restaurant, Great Steaks, on 10th Avenue, and that Ashbury was there, and a few others, including Joe, impeccably dressed and gracious, who picked up what must have been, I thought at the time, an exorbitant bill. I remember him saying more than once, Joe always picks up the bill, then smiling a slightly wicked smile. Sitting with him, those excruciating silences in his room at the Chelsea, my eyes would wander from his bookshelves, the portrait of a lady stood out, to the pan of water on the radiator, to the records strewn on the floor, to some scraggly plants, ivy, herbs, in ceramic pots at the base of the French doors that opened to the balcony and balustrade and sound of traffic on 23rd Street, six floors below.
He read me White Boat, Blue Boat shortly after he wrote it, and a poem about Brooke Benton singing Rainy Night in Georgia that didn't make it into his last poems, though I remember thinking it beautiful. He complained in a letter to Tom about how much I smoked and how emotional I'd get during movies. He must have been referring to Field of Dreams. He had a yen for Kevin Costner. When he took me to see L'Atlante, a film he loved, I was bored. Once we took the subway, he hadn't ridden it in years, to the Frick. I remember admiring Romney's Lady Hamilton. It hurt that he didn't invite me to the dinner after his dia reading or to the reception after his reading at the 92nd Street Y, though he did, at the latter, read Mood Indigo, dedicated to me. When he said my name from the stage, Joan and Eileen, sitting to my left, turned and stared at me. Frozen by the enormity of the moment, I couldn't look back. When he came to a reading I gave at St. Mark's, Raymond impressed upon me what an honor it was. Jimmy didn't go to many poetry readings. What else is there to say? That when I visited him at St. Vincent's the day before he died, Dara said, he likes to hear gossip. So I said, Eileen and I are talking again. That at his funeral I sat alone, Ira couldn't come, that that was the loneliest feeling in the world. That afterwards Doug said, you look so sad. How should I have looked, Doug? And that a year after he died, I dreamt I saw him in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel. He was wearing a hospital shift and seemed to have no muscle control over his face, like in intensive care after his stroke. He saw me and said, it's nice to see some familiar faces. I approached him, but he disappeared. This poem is composed of movie titles and it's also a ecological statement of sorts. Nature poem. Till the clouds roll by, a patch of blue, how green was my valley, splendor in the grass, the petrified forest, the river of no return, lilies of the field, the bad seed, a tree grows in Brooklyn, autumn leaves, lost horizon, gone with the wind. And this poem begins with an exchange of dialogue from a, a Joan Crawford film from the 1950s. Queen Bee for Robin Schiff. It's really not like me, says the timid cousin. Then you be like the dress. See how slyly she removes her sleep mask, how maliciously she swats the dolls with her riding crop, how she gleefully destroys the lives of those around her. Oh, evil matriarch, oh, wicked frock.
And th this is another poem uh, composed in entirely of movie titles. I, I, I took all of the movies that Betty Davis made, there, there were about 80 of them, and uh, tried to weave them into a, a narrative or uh, the illusion of a narrative. All this in heaven too. The bride came COD, payment on demand. The letter marked, woman dangerous, June bride, cabin in the cotton, border town, way back home. Whatever happened to baby Jane, housewife. Winter meeting, Satan met a lady, the girl from 10th Avenue, Hell's House, Bunny O'Hare. That certain woman, bad sister, the dark horse, the old maid, the empty canvas, the nanny, the scapegoat, wicked stepmother, the menace. Now voyager, parachute jumper, watch on the Rhine, fog over Frisco, storm center, the whales of August, Waterloo Bridge, the big shakedown, so big, all about Eve, ex-lady Jezebel, three on a match, Kid Galahad, Jimmy the Gent, Special Agent Juarez. The rich are always with us, front page woman, the star, Hollywood canteen. The private lives of Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, and Essex, the man who played God. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, it's love I'm after. Deception, the great lie. Another man's poison seed, death on the Nile. 20,000 years in Sing Sing. Phone call from a stranger, dead ringer. Bureau of Missing Persons, John Paul Jones, the working man, Mr. Skeffington, the man who came to dinner, the catered affair, the anniversary. The golden arrow skyward, dark victory in this our life of human bondage, a stolen life. Old acquaintance, <clears throat> the scientific card player. Fashions of 1934, the sisters connecting rooms. Beyond the forest, the petrified forest, the corn is green. Pocket full of miracles, burnt offerings. Watcher in the woods, thank your lucky stars, the little foxes return from which mountain where love has gone. <clears throat> and I'll finish with this poem, and I think it's a, a nice setup for Robert. It's, it's about ghosts, and um, it specifically is about um, seeing this William Castle film, uh, 13 Ghosts, when I was about 10 years old. Oh, when I was 10 years old. Who's there? Iris or Olaf? Captain Howdy? Ephraim, Sybil's pan. The planchette rose off the Ouija board and floated midair. Medea, the daughter, screamed. Or did I scream in my seat, 10 years old, at that Saturday matinee in Reseda? Surely I did. I was Medea. Thank you.
So thank you for coming and two little statements at the outset how great it is to be here in connection with Bomb Magazine, a magazine that David and I both um, have done work for and, and have appeared in and, and love and admire. And then I wanted to say what a particular pleasure it is to be reading with David, a poet that I've admired for a long time and his work has been very central to me. And we were, th we were talking about how, how we met, and I think we met at a high-risk books reading in New York maybe about 15 years ago. And he was a vital part of the New School graduate writing program before we lost him, and you were lucky enough to get him here at, at Columbia. Um, I'll read four poems. I'm going to start with a poem called Confidential, which is named after the, the great old Hollywood scandal magazine, Hollywood Confidential. Confidential. She wears the sacred heart on her sleeve for Christ's sake. Who would have pegged her as a blackmailer? There is a photograph I used to live inside. Many have taken it one time or another. By the end, she would only step out with her cute boy reporters, the ones who wrote she was pretty, sad, and misunderstood. Love came over us, everyone said, like destiny, to give it up would be like giving up God. But listen, this is confidential. We are at the Formosa. It is no year I can think of. But in rapid succession, I'm Frank Sinatra, Barbara Stanwyck, Gloria Graham, Orson Welles. You'd think this would be fun. They're all cool, right? Plus the sex, the love even. The yearning in those faces yearning towards me but it's not, and not just because I have no control over who I become. Orson, Barbara, Gloria, Frank, would it matter? But instead, I'm always too old or too young. Someone's just walked out on me, or I've just left him or her. I'm not discovered yet, or no one wants me except for who I used to be. I'm too drunk or too fat or too crazy. I'm in someone's office, unzipping his fly. I'm shouting, don't you know who I am? And that's the problem. I always do. I know exactly who I am. This next poem moves from a Bing Crosby movie to Stanley Kubrick's film The Killing by way of Patti Smith's first album, Horses. <laughs> Three horse operas. At the end of Bing Crosby's riding high, his horse will be buried in the clay of the racetrack where he fell as a lesson for all of us. Sad, waggish Bing. The mob didn't want Broadway Bill to win, so the jockey pulled on the reins until the thoroughbred straining over the finish line first collapsed, heart attack. I loved you like a guitar string breaking under the conviction of a clumsy hand, something like that. I suppose I must have been thinking of you and your complex and beautiful band, except the image demands I hold the guitar, if not you and the broken string as over and over loudspeakers call riders to the starting gate. The track bartender and a teller, a sharpshooter and the chess master wrestler, 
the petty con man and a cop reprise their parts. The heist gang dons clown masks, and Sherry will betray George, and Johnny can't love Faye, and the fortune in the suitcase just blows away. A somewhat different poem called Mike the Winger and the city of the, of the poem is Quincy, Massachusetts, where I mostly grew up. Mike the Winger. City of Presidents, city of the granite railway in Four River Shipyard. But city too of condoms ground into our pitcher's rubber. And city of water rats and black leeches floating in the spring runoff. City of the first Howard Johnsons, the first Dunkin' Donuts. City of Lee Remick modeling summer dresses for her father's store. And city now where Beatles albums drop from the sky as Mike the Winger speaks from inside a circling crowd. Pockmarked, pimpled, and blazing, he looks, Tommy LeBlanc said, like someone set his face on fire, then stomped it out with golf shoes. As he straddles his new black phantom, as he rocks on his new red kids, as he pounds his wire basket of new LPs, Mike demonstrates the legendary gesture that gave him his name. I play him once, then I wing him, he says. Every afternoon, Mike spins his own top 40 from his bike like a paperboy launching the Patriot Ledger across our lawn. Those Rolling Stones, those Beach Boys, those groups all you kids like, they're okay. But man, I love them Beatles. They wing up real good. What about his parents? Where does he grab all that cash? Nobody stops to ask, caught in the awe of the grander phenomena. Manna from heaven. Records eased from their jackets and arced into air. Records pristine and gleaming in trees. Records scratched and gritty on the streets. Amid shouts of go Mike, go nuts, go wing nut, come on Mikey baby, wing one over here. The hits just keep on coming. The dead are everywhere. But if Mike is still alive, he'd be tracking retirement age. Though how do you retire from something like winging? Mere technological obsolescence? Mike frustrated by CD's casualty to a digital age. Maybe winging records is like making movies or saying mass, you're calling. You do it until you can't do it anymore. Mike worshiped the early gods of rock and roll, Chuck Berry, Elvis, Little Richard, and Buddy Holly. Then he winged everybody else. None of the records Mike tossed have ever gone away. Who would have guessed that? City of John Adams and John Quincy Adams are second and sixth presidents. City of Miles Corner, rockabilly singer and art thief. City of Robert Polito. City of Mike the Winger. And I'll end with the title poem. Hollywood and God. If only God would save me, I would know how to hurt you. If only God would save me, I would know who to sell my soul to. 
Anything is an autobiography, but this is a conversation. William Burroughs insisted literature lagged 50 years behind painting, thinking no doubt about abstraction, collage, fragmentation, his cut-ups. But whatever that meant, why always 50 years? Or however he presumed to rile other writers, poetry probably does lag behind any credible media theory about it. So that if I put a pine tree into a poem, a grove of pine trees and beyond them the sea, you'd think it was the same tree Wordsworth put there. Instead of two obligatory centuries of nature studies, all those technicolor vistas, tort songs, couples drifting through leaves and Salem commercials. Into one life and out another, the way a junkie playing a writer, a writer playing a priest, so that when I finally blurted out, you betrayed me, I wounded you, we're so unhappy. You assumed the burden of personal urgency. Suppose it was me speaking at the limits of my self-control and not the damn don't cry, temptation, and leave her to heaven. You open your mouth and a tradition dribbles out. But that's mimesis. How almost impossible to avoid mimesis anybody's hardest truths prompting the most fractured constructions. The way to think about God might be to disobey God, if only God's wish to remain hidden, so that if everything is an autobiography, this is a conversion. As my lives flash before me, why must the yearning for God trump all other yearnings? You often hear converts confess the drinking his pills, her sexual addiction, concealed inside them a yearning for God. Why not the other way around? The admission of Jesus into your life, concealing instead the wish, say a need, to be fucked senseless, drunk, drugged, and screaming, oh God, oh God, on a hotel bed. God embraces our yearnings. That afternoon, my father heard his diagnosis of an operable cancer. My Aunt Barbara demanded we get him to Lourdes. She demanded this with a glass of vodka in her hand. She demanded this running her fingers up and down my leg. She demanded this before she passed out in her car. In the movie of my life, my father died after I forgave him. And when my secret tormentor said, may the ghosts of your dreams gnaw at your belly like a wolf under your jacket, did she really want revenge, or was she just killing time? For me, God is a hair shirt, or he's nothing. For me, God is a pain in the ass. That's mimesis again. This hour, I tell you things in confidence. I might not tell everybody, but I'll tell you. The world is a road under the wall to the church. The world is a church, and the world is a road, and the world is a stone wall. Still, he wanted her the way the cardinal wanted the Caravaggio. And when the ill-advised possessor of the painting resisted, one night papal guards searched his house. Of course, contraband came to light, some illegal rifles. And when the ill-advised possessor of the painting went to prison, the cardinal got his Caravaggio. But I wasn't a cardinal, nephew to the pope, and you, 
you were not a Caravaggio. So I asked you to be in my movie. Thank you. Get into into twin electric chairs. Yes. <laughs> so now we're going to talk for yeah. a while. I don't. Maybe we might start like with your with that poem you read about ghosts. You know, mm -hmm. at the at the end that you know that draws on James Merrill's The Book of Ephraim and other things. But it seems to me that one of the subjects that both of our books are about is the relationship between the living and the, and the dead. I mean, there are a lot of elegies in your book, very movingly for your mother, but also for actresses. And, and in a way, the, there's a, a spirit of elegy about your own childhood that I think the book um, conveys. And I've often thought that um, movies, particularly black and white movies, are about the relationship between the living and the dead. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of being struck looking at a movie and thinking suddenly, oh, everybody on the screen now, no matter how young and how alive or violent, vibrant, they're all dead, you know? And um, I don't know, maybe we could, you know, pursue that a little bit, because I'm certainly very interested in um, a notion of kind of poetry as a conversation with the, the dead, uh, the, you know, the great dead, and some, as some people put it. Well, you know, uh, I assume this is a, um, yeah, yeah, I was thinking um, when I was reading, re reading those poems, I mean, you know, The Late Show, my book, The Late Show, it, the, the title came to me fairly early on, and so there was this way in which um, my relationship to, to old movies, especially the movies from my childhood, sort of intermingled mm -hmm. with, um, the elegies for, for writer friends and, and relatives. Um, and I, I think it was, you know, par, part of it for me is that the, the, mo the movies gave me such a sense of comfort and escape as a child yeah. that, that I, I think, you know, there was this longing or nostalgia for um, that sense that, you know, that um, I, I think I still turn to movies for that. And you know, I don't know. You know, I, I know what you mean. It, like I've watched movies where it, it strikes me, oh, God, everyone's dead. Everyone yeah. who made this movie is dead, and and yet it comes alive for me. You know, it's still right. very much alive. Oh and, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that's the other side of it. And I think that one of the things that I think our poems are obviously are interested in are kind of making those moments come alive, and it's mm -hmm. even to use a kind of fancier word for it, like even resurrecting them in some ways in the, in the poems themselves and, and eternizing them in, in some way. And you know, when I was reading too, I thought, God, a lot of the people in the audience are so young. I, I wonder how these movie references are coming across to, for them, you know? Like, maybe they can tell us in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but I think one of the interesting things about being alive at this moment is that unlike when, say, you and I were in college. I mean, I think that one's access to movies of the past and music of the past is so much easier and vaster now. I mean, it's like, it's like nothing from the, sort of like the, 
World War II on has, has gone away. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's one of the things, I mean, I think the, the, like the end of Mike the Winger is kind of about, is that like, who would have guessed when he was throwing these Beatles and Rolling Stones and Kinks albums and, you know, from his bicycle that, um, that people would still be listening to those records, you know, almost, almost 50 years later. Because there wasn't there a sense growing up that this stuff was going to disappear? It was just sort of, it was, it felt transient. And, yeah. You know, that there was a, you know, a song would be replaced by a new hit. Right. Or the movies would, would a movie would leave and a, a new movie would replace it and you couldn't see it anymore. So, the, and then to, to sort of become an adult and everything's coming back at us, you know, I mean, this great profusion. I mean, we all have friends who, you know, who, who ritualistically buy Beatles albums for their children, you know, I mean, it's, you know, um, um, yeah, and it was meant to be a disposable culture, or at least it was thought to be. And I'm a complete DVD addict. I mean, it, I, I just love owning films. Yeah. And I have friends who think, why, why do you have to own these? You know? <laughs> same, same. <laughs> and it's, it's a real estate problem as well. As <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, there are these albums now that you can yeah. slip them into, yeah. right, and get rid of those, those yeah. shells. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering, um, rereading your book, whether you, you see the poems about your mother, the, poem about, the poems about actresses, and the poems about um, writer friends like Jimmy Schuyler and Joe Brainerd as, as similar or on a continuum. Um, you know, for instance, like when you write a poem about Jimmy Schuyler, um, other than the fact that you knew him, and as far as I know, didn't know Betty Davis, um, What's the, what is it's the probably difference? a good thing, I yeah. didn't know. Better what is the difference it. for you? Um, well, you know, it, it, I, I, I don't know. I, I, they feel maybe more similar than different because in writing those, those elegies, it, 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 the challenge was fi finding a way to talk to my dad, you know, uh, the people that I miss, mm -hmm. and, and that's, and I shied away from that for a long time, so it seemed like a really difficult thing to do. And and I, I think it's, you know, I don't often, I don't really understand the attraction to certain actresses and 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 film stuff, and 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 that I'm trying to figure out, like, mm -hmm. you know, by writing the poem, um, why, you know, why why do Betty Davis and Joan Crawford mesmerize me so, mm -hmm. and, and 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 so the. the I don't know. I, I see a similarity, similarity there in that I'm um, trying to find a way to sort of talk to, to them and, and yeah. solve something. Does that make sense? No, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Very much so. Um, well, and you know, in your book, like, I, like there's lots of speakers in your, in your book, and um, you know, there, there's Paris Hilton. There's Michael Edwards, who lived with Priscilla Presley, mm -hmm. and there's sort of these figures from, I guess, the B side of celebrity, and mm -hmm. and then there's a speaker who, we talked a, a little bit about this earlier, but among between ourselves, but you know that I, I want to see is you, the poet, and it, who's referred to as Bobby Polito. Yeah, you know, um, but it's a little slippery. So may, maybe you could talk about. Um, this is a very you know, this is a very heavily collage book. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, and um, you know, there'll be there'll be passages that sound like they're in my voice, but they're actually like from I don't know a 
Newsweek magazine or something like that. Or um, they're, like for instance, like in, in, in the title poem, when, when I say, um, um, I, I might not tell everybody this, but I'll tell it to you. That's a, a direct quote from Whitman. You know? so, it's, so in a way, it's actually his confession at that moment. And, and one of the things that struck me about that line is that it doesn't sound like Whitman. It actually sounds more like Gertrude Stein, who's also quoted in the poem. It has that kind of sly slipperiness about, like, you know, he, here you are in a, either in a poem or, or an auditorium like this saying, well, I'm, I wouldn't tell everybody this, but, you know, you know you're important enough and I trust you enough to, to tell that to you. And, and what I was really interested in was um, getting other people to tell my story and then mixing in passages that seem like they're my story, but they're other people's stories. Um, so that the, the book, I think, sounds a lot more autobiographical than it is. And, uh, and I've always been very interested in um, the tones of voice of, con of confessional poetry without necessarily being all that interested in autobiography. Like, like I have, I don't have all that much interest like in my own childhood in some ways. I mean, it, 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 was a, it was a time in which I was relatively happy until adolescence and, and um, it's there and, and kind of manageable and, and sometimes I'll kind of go near it. But I, but I obviously have a, like a real interest in, in childhood and other people's childhood and, and things that spring off from childhood like religion and, and or at least in my case growing up um, despite my Italian sounding last name, kind of very Irish Catholic in, in Boston. But, 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 it, but it all kind of comes back to um, sounding personal. And I think that's also what I wanted to do with the collages in some ways was, um, I think a lot of collage poetry of the 80s and 90s draws attention to itself as collage. And I was interested in more collaging lots of things, but making them sound kind of seamless, making them sound almost like they came from a single, a single speaker, even though if you looked at it kind of closely, it all sort of fragments in front of you. But it's pretty convincing, I, I felt. That was the hope, I mean, the hope, I mean. Um, and I think we're different there because, you know, I, I have to write sort of tricking myself into believing that it is me yeah. speaking, of course, it, it ends up being a speaker in a poem. It's not me, right? But I have to sort of believe that, and that I'm speaking from the center of my feelings yeah. or, or experience. No, and I, and I think the feelings are really important. I mean, I mean, I, I think that's where, like, um, I'm really glad that you say that you found it convincing because if it, if it wasn't convincing, it would, in a way, be drawing attention to itself as a kind of collage exercise or something like that, rather than something in which I'm. I'm taking my own feelings and then maybe triangulating them through some other source. And, and I've always thought one of the great moments, obviously, in, in, in classic confessional poetry is, you know, is Robert Lowell's Skunk Hour, where the speaker of that poem goes down and very almost kind of creepily talks about himself as, as looking in the windows of what he calls these love cars, these people kind of you know, making out in some lover's lane. But um, in the notes to that poem in Frank Bedart's edition of the, of the book, I mean, he says that that's a story borrowed from the biography of Walt Whitman again. Really? You know, that Lowell didn't really do that. You know? And similarly, in that prose poem, you know, there's a, uh, that prose piece in there about, you know, about Revere Street, um, the, the captain who takes over it you know, never, never had any kind of physical existence outside of, um, 
you know, Lowell's head either. So I mean, I think that a, a lot of what seems autobiographical even in classic poem, classic kind of confessional poems. And, and I know that you've, you're you know, a big fan of, of Sexton, and, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if some of her poems, I think, you know, move in the same you know, eerie mix of, of, of fiction and, mm -hmm. and autobiography. But is that true? I mean, from... yeah, possibly, um, but I, I think so, yeah. I mean, she said so famously that you know, poems will force you to lie yeah. and, and invent things. So. Um, which I find to be true too. Yeah, but, yeah. But <laughs> even though I still believe it's all me. Yeah, know? no, I mean, and, and this is all me in some sense too. Yeah. But, but, um, but not too. Yeah. Well, I, like I was really moved at, at the end of your piece, Shame, which is a memoir-esque yeah. piece, and um, about the, you know the photograph of. of the speaker, like should I say, the speaker's grandmother. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the almost you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like that Elvis Costello song, almost blue, yeah, almost <laughs> me, almost you, almost blue, yeah. Um, but in that way, it felt like your book is haunted by both, you know, sort of public and private ghosts. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I mean, and, and in that poem, I mean, it, it was a, or that prose piece, whatever it is, um, it's an attempt to come to terms with some of the things you were talking about too. I mean, it, it was an effort to kind of understand my father and why, the way, and why he was the way that he was um, by way of understanding the remarkably little that I actually know about his mother, my, my grandmother. And most of what's in there about her is absolutely true as far as I knew it at the time, but it's, but it's very little. Um, and I was, you know, I was struck like when I did my Thompson book that I know way more about his ancestors than I know about my own. I mean, I could take his ancestors back centuries and, and I really can't go back much before my father into my, you know, and it, and it gets very um, hazy with my, with my, particularly the Italian grandparents. Um, and at the end of that piece, I, I connected to something that I think means a lot to both of us, which is kind of collections, which is in, in, in my case was kind of collecting tintypes, these old photographs, as a way of, to a certain extent, kind of searching for my grandmother, because I mean, a lot of these tintypes would have been taken in the, in the period when she would have been a young person and, and alive. And, and the way in which I think those photographs, for me, um, are an attempt to put together a kind of alternate family in some ways, you know, the, a family that I know something about, at least to the extent of having photographs of them. And I've often been struck, like you can walk into a, a junk store or an antique store, um, which are often the same thing, and um, there'll be a, 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 an album there of, of photographs, you know, taken at the, you know, the, the turn of the 20th, in the 19th into the 20th century or something like that, um, or taken in the, you know, before World War One, and and it's an entire family, and you and you can buy it for relatively little money, and then suddenly, you know, you can read your way through it as if it's, you know, who are these people? There are multiple pictures of the same person, and um, you know, and you kind of imagine your way into the pages of that album, and I think that 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 piece is a little bit about those things, but but kind of very driven by 
an effort to try to understand my father and his yearnings and what was missing from his life in the form of his mother. Well, it makes me think too, you know, the, the, the piece I read about Betty Davis's films, like that, that too seems to be a collecting impulse, you know, to, to bring together um, all, the, all these films. Yeah. And like, like when I was a teenager, I would study this, the, the films of Betty Davis. Yeah. You know, and it, well, and, and I think collage looked at from one perspective is exactly that, right? I mean, it's an effort to bring together all of these things and by bumping them up against one another, you know, make something out of them. How are we on time? Yeah. <laughs> what is 15 minutes? <laughs> Okay, great, great. Um, and you have a line in one of your poems, the glamour of the damaged. Yeah. And, um, and that's something I relate to, you know, sort of being attracted to sort of fallen Hollywood stars. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk about the appeal of, of, of that. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, because like, I think that, um, you know, th that's in a poem that's about, um, um, an apparently seemingly kind of disturbed woman who was absolutely convinced that she was living with Bob Dylan when she wasn't. Um, and, um, and I actually met this person. And she was, she was in New York actually trying to sell a book about that experience. And, and um, what I wanted to do with the poem was not, you know, just make her absolutely mercenary and not just make her totally delusional, but that she actually was living with someone who actually had convinced her that he was Bob Dylan. And I think the glamour of the damage, I mean, for me, it, it, it comes in a way, at least autobiographically, for, more from rock and roll in some ways than it comes from the movies. And I think I grew up much more on music than I did on the, on the movies. And my interest in movies comes a little bit later. And I remember one of my friends talking about the appeal of being a, a rock singer is that you would you would get to you know, stage your crises in front of you know, thousands and thousands of people. And it seems to me that that, that, that you know, kind of melodramatic, fallen sense, I think, is a, is a very deep part of, I think, what, 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 what rock and roll is about. You know, I mean, this, this, this sense that it's, um, it's, it's sung from loss, it's sung from desperation, it's sung from anger, um, and that, um, you know, that's the damage part of it, and the glamour part of it is the, is, the, is, is the public part of it, that somehow you're making art or spectacle mm -hmm. out of it. And, and I'm guessing that, that some of the actresses that you write about I write about actresses too, like Barbara Payton would certainly right. fit, fit yeah. that. Um, you know, have that same quality. Um, yes, I think so, but I, I, I also, I'm very drawn to the notion of, of uh, I don't know why, uh, uh, usually a female movie star um, who has outlived her fame. Yeah. You know, sort of the indignity of that. Yeah. That's just so mesmerizing. Um, and, and, I think I, I think it has to do too with sort of an inability to accept how transitory right. the, yeah. you know life itself right. is, and um, and, it, and I think that 
one of the people that the, the artist has been extremely important to me is Andy Warhol. You know, and, and I think that's what a lot of Warhol, I think, is, is about. I mean, then you think that the description that you just gave of, of you know, people kind of outliving their fame, I mean, is something that, that he was very interested in, yes. particularly like in the, in the early 60s in those death and disaster paintings or the Liz paintings or the Marilyn Monroe paintings and are not outliving it, you know. Um, was Warhol important to you? Yes, yes, very, very important to, to me. And, and I'm not sure I can articulate why even. He, he's, it's a little mysterious, but um, I, I think just I, those images are mesmerizing yeah. and, and the soup cans and Marilyn yeah. and Liz and, and you know, so. Yeah, and there's something about making art and beautiful art out of like, you know, race riots and electric chairs and, and car wrecks that, I mean, you know, I think is, you know, inescapably a part of what I think of as, as you know, as poem. Well, and now we can take a question or two. Maybe poems about looking at photographs, poems about looking at paintings, or poems about listening to records. Um, what would some of those poems maybe be that you would feel to be somewhat akin to your poems about watching films? And are any of your students writing poems about playing video games. I mean, in terms of, you know, I'm thinking of these different kinds of sort of secondhand processed experiences of others' lives and how, as, as, a, as, as raw material for poetry, as opposed to, you know, memories and sunsets and <laughs> other things, um, how, you know, photographs, paintings, books, movies, video games, I mean, what, what manner of ekphrasis is this? You mean like a little anthology of poems like that? Well, are there poems about looking at photographs or poems about listening to music that oh, sure, you have yeah. in mind as having a kinship to your poems about watching films and remembering films? Well, you know, one that comes immediately to mind is, is an early poem by Alice Notley called I Watched the 1977 Academy Awards, so, which is about just that. Um, which I've always loved that poem. And, um, I forgot television. I should have included television, television yeah, in that and, list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there are many, many examples, yeah. And, and stu my, I find that students write poems about... Um, the things in popular culture that are important to them, like songs, movies. Well, I was thinking particularly of video games since, I mean, these, these late show movies were part of your right. adolescence experience, and these games, far more so than Betty Davis, are part of their experience, perhaps. So, I mean, he's just trying to find, you know, a generational counterpart. I'm, I'm sure there are. I haven't yeah. read any. Yeah, but, I mean, but <laughs> I think that with my students anyways, I mean, I think, 
you know, Nick at Night is the closest that we come to a common culture, I think, in America. And it, and it seems to me that, like, if, if you want to get a laugh at a poetry reading, all you have to do is, is, is introduce the title of, a, of a, a classic television program from the 60s or the 70s or something like that. And, and I think that, you know, everybody responds to that the way that maybe at some earlier era, like they responded to Homer or Virgil or something, like, you know, that everybody, you know, who read knew that. Um, I, I really like um, Edward Field's Variety Photo Place, which I think is a great, great book of poems, mainly about kind of, you know, B-movies, um, horror movies of the... And often just retelling the plots. Yeah, often know, just yeah, retelling the plots. And then, um, and then a, a, a very different kind of poem might be, um, um, you know, James Merrill's poems about operas and... Um, you know, or his ballad about imagining, which I was reminded of in, like, in your ballad, in a way, like, reminded, you know, um, of, in which he's, he imagines himself as a Lindbergh baby being stolen, so that it's almost like a kind of pulp story. Um, but for me, actually, to go back to rock and roll, I mean, it would be, like, you know, Kink's songs, you know, the, particularly the album Everybody's in Show Business, you know. Um, you can see all the stars as you walk along Hollywood Boulevard, you know, some that you recognize, some that you've probably never heard of. I don't know if we're, if we're answering your question, but... Video games is a, is a gap, clearly, yeah. in both of our... Um, what are video games? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, what is the small shelf on which your books belong next to earlier generations' books of poems about other kinds of second-hand experiences? And Ode to a Grecian Urn, obviously, is one of the older, old-school <laughs> ones like that. But I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, are there, are there, do you feel yourself belonging to some kind of a, a, a minor um, strain? Yeah. Tradition yeah. of, tradition. of, of but, but more specifically, of, of a kind of ekphrasis, that's yeah. all. Yeah, and, and my, my last duchess. I mean, I'd love, to, I'd love to be on the same shelf that my last duchess is on. Oh, so we can go back in time. <laughs> Sappho. Yeah. <laughs> I'm expecting someone to ask, who's Betty Davis? <laughs> or well, another video game question. I've never played video games, and I definitely like resonate more with Betty Davis than video games. So I just think that's really interesting. Like for being the age that I am and everything. And like I got so many of the movie references that you talked about and I just think that's awesome. Right on guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I still back with, the, with your question, but you know, there is a tradition in, in contemporary poetry of, of writing about popular culture and figures from popular culture. I mean, it goes back to Edward Field and Frank O'Hara and he said the poem should be at least as interesting as the movie. Right. You know. And a poet like Tim Dugos, who yeah. um, was one of the first poets I know of to, you know, he has a, to write about television shows. He has a poem called Gilligan's Island, which is quite marvelous. Yeah, and absolutely. So. John Ashbery's Popeye. Right. Sestina. I know uh, the Late Show 
quite well in David's work, and but I have a question for both of you. Um, different questions. So when I heard the poems this time, I was struck by a new layer for me in their very deep elegiac nature, which you spoke about, um, and which Robert Polito spoke about. For example, in the poem, one of the first poems that you read that ends with vanishing into thin air with Kim Novak going out the window. Um, and I've always understood this deep need that your poems are, are working in and trying to figure out, and it has to do with a mediation of identity, um, possible identities and so on. But this time I was struck by where some of the some of the elegiac quality is coming from is the ways in which certain identities are recognized as sort of never possible. Like they've already, they're already, they've already always vanished um, just at the moment of one's perception of them. And I don't know if I'm articulating this well, but oh, a so sense of... Yeah. And, and Betty Davis and so on. And for, for them, for the actresses as well, and for the fictive women being portrayed, certain realms of identity that are being played with and being put on, but are not actually possible. And then there's, of course, the speaker or you looking at these identities. As you said, I was Medea. And I love that, you know, that claiming of it. But at the same time, that utterance has to be haunted by, you know, its own impossibility. And I just, I thought that was very powerful and very moving. Um, so I'd be interested in if that, if that resonates with you at all. And then Robert Polito, I um, wonder if you could talk a little bit about God, um, like where, why that compels you or um, what that has, where that comes from in any degree. Well, that, that's such a that's such a great comment, and you know, it. it, it I, I think so many, of, so much of what I write about comes from that, that sort of deep wound or sorrow or knowledge that, it, or questioning what can be possessed, what can I possess, and you know, there's the flickering images on a screen. There's, I, I just think that that that's at maybe the heart of what I what I do. You know this, um, this sadness that um, I, I can't really connect or possess, or you know, I mean, which I especially felt in childhood. You know, um, the, the things I couldn't have, you know, the person I couldn't be, and and all of that I think comes into it. I was. I was raised Catholic. Um, I'm not a, a practicing Catholic, and and I think in most conventional ways, I wouldn't consider myself a believer in 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 God. But I have a, you know, as I think probably was apparent when we were talking a little while ago. I mean, I I have my own little kind of cult of the dead in some ways. I mean, I have a kind of sentimental superstition about you know the relationship between you know myself and my dead family, my, you know, dead friends, um, that, that, that moves on a tangent out into maybe, you know, dead writers and, and artists that have meant a lot to me. And I, as I said before, I very much do think of, 
um, poetry particularly as a conversation between us who are alive and and those who are dead via you know the page reading them you know on the page and moving inside them for the period in which you read the poem and I think that's what embodiment I think is, is about and religion I think is very much about embodiment but in, in the book once I had that title Hollywood and God and and curiously like it it was um, it, it was initially my joke title for the book. Um, um, it, the, the serious title for the book was, a, was another poem called Deep Deuce. Um, and it, it was a phrase that I found in Oklahoma City, and it means way down on 2nd Street. Um, but all the poems I knew were about Hollywood and God, and, and that was just kind of the, the working title that I had. And then at some point it shifted over to the real title. And I was interested in these moments in which um, Transcendence bumps up against celebrity culture, which I think happens all the time in the in the United States. And um, but I didn't want it to be satirical, really. I mean, I didn't want it to be a book of of jokey poems about funny people that the poems were making fun of. Because I mean, I think um, I'm very moved by religious impulses in myself and in, and in other people, and that the the trivializing in them in the culture shouldn't be mistaken for what I think is powerful and basic and essential about, about those spiritual impulses. At the same time, though, in your book, it, there's a sense of sort of religion or religious dogma and then Hollywood stardom. As being analogous. But, and being illusion, both yeah, illusions, both illusions that sort of drop away. Illusions, and, yeah. Both, both illusions and maybe, you know, half necessary mm -hmm. illusions at the, at the same time. Um, because um, it's hard to imagine not being interested in those things, you know. And, and one other thing about what what Lisa said, you know, when when you were talking, I I, I remembered that at the end of the first poem I read, I read where Kim Novak sort of vanishes or falls mm -hmm. into thin air, and then the, my elegy for James Schuyler where he disappears. Yeah. At yeah. the end, there's this, like, yeah, there's this, you know, people we love vanish. And um. any final questions? We can't end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, I guess we thanks. Can. <laughs> <laughs> we can. I mean, isn't that how it ends? We'll vanish. <laughs> isn't, yeah. isn't that the Goodbye. end? <laughs> Thank you so much to Robert for being here from New York and to David for being here and um, to Bomb Magazine and to all of you for coming. Thanks and a lot. Thank you, Becca. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You just heard a conversation between the poets Robert Polito and David Trinidad. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.